Hey, this is Ashley. And this is Megan. And this is the Mito Podcast. And this is our second episode today. So we're going to be talking about um, quite a few things, but we're going to start with um, what is mitochondrial disease and what is the mitochondria, and then go from there and talk about um, how you get diagnosed and eventually going to mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, so the first thing is, what is mitochondria? Uh, mitochondria is basically in all of your cells except for your blood cells, and it is what produces the energy that everything in your body needs to um, use to be able to run work. This is all of your systems in your body, your digestive system, um, your mm-hmm. respiratory system, everything. Your organs. Yeah, literally everything. So all the cells in your body have mitochondria except for the blood cells, like I said. Um, and if they're not producing or able to make the energy that is needed, then those mitochondria and those cells end up actually dying. Um, so if you think about it, um, your whole body is charged up with these mitochondria. It's like little batteries all over your body. So if you have mitochondrial disease, um, those mitochondria do not work. Um, they're not producing the energy that you need. So all the cells in your body, um, begin to die and dysfunction and they're not able to produce energy. Um, so one of the things which actually you said when we were on the news one time is having mitochondrial disease is like trying to power an entire house with one battery. Yeah. And so it makes it really difficult when your mitochondria aren't functioning correctly. And your, your body, when your mitochondria are not functioning correctly, your body has to choose what's going to work. So a lot of times when we have mitochondrial disease, um, a lot of the complications come from organs not working anymore because your body is trying to just like keep the heart going mm-hmm. or keep your, your kidneys. Or mm-hmm. So a lot of times when people are diagnosed with mitochondrial disease, um, they pass away because their organs fail. Exactly. And your heart, your muscles, and your brain is actually what uses the most amount of energy. So those are the things that, like you said, your body is putting those first because those are the things that need the most energy. So other systems are not getting the energy that they need. So <laughs> so if you have a mitochondrial disease, it means that your mitochondria are not functioning properly. Um, there are quite a few different mitochondrial diseases. There's uh, so many that yeah. we would never be able to get through them no. on the podcast. <laughs> and, and to be honest, um, I was even looking at the UMDF is um, the United Mitochondrial Disease Foundation, um, and they have an amazing website. I was even looking at the different ones today before this podcast, and I mean, there are so many. There's about 40 listed on there, but I know there's actually more than that. There's hundreds. Um, yeah. So it's there, there are quite a few, but it basically comes down to the fact that your mitochondria do not work. Therefore, you have a mitochondrial disease. Um, and so there's so many ways and different ways that that presents in children and in adults. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and, it, and it's different for every person. Even, even if you have the same exact disease, which I think we kind of talked about in the first podcast, if you have the same disease, even the same genetic marker, you will have different symptoms. Mm, you can present completely differently. There's no cookie cutter explanation for any of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so hard as a parent to hear this and to research. It's like you're trying to figure out what is going to happen to your child. What are they going to be able to do, not be able to do? What the, and the, it's constant research. Yeah. And you're, you're, 
looking for just one kid to help you understand how your road is is going to end up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we should. It, it's easier for us to be able to explain that by telling you our own stories. Um, and I know we in the first podcast mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about our kids. Um, so now we can talk about what the day to day was like mm-hmm. um, or is like. Um, do you want to start with Troy? Um, sure, <laughs> sure. So Troy is about to turn 12. Um, and I think, you know, going back and looking at how he presented, definitely just the hypotonia, the floppiness, um, you know, just not meeting those milestones, not being able to hold his head up. So that kind of almost what it looks like is muscle weakness. Um, that was the big thing that we saw and that we continue to see today. Troy can walk, um, but he requires a lot of assistance. Um, he will use the walker uh, when he wants to. <laughs> um, but otherwise, um, we do a great deal of supporting him in getting up out of chairs, um, just getting out of bed, uh, doing all those different things that require so much muscle movement. Um, it's very difficult for him. And then that also goes along with he um, his speech. Um, unfortunately, we don't think about when we talk, but it's actually difficult. It involves so many muscle movements in our mouth and with our tongue. And so it's very difficult for Troy. Um, so he only has a few words in his speech and he uses uh, sign language and different things. Um, he does take a nap every day because he gets tired. Um, you know, there's so many different uh, activities that we have to be very careful of because if it tires them out too much. Um, I'm trying to think of just all the things. What time does he usually get up in the morning? So he uh, didn't start sleeping through the night till he was almost five years old and he would get up multiple times in the night. Um, And then finally he did start sleeping through the night. And honestly, it just depends. If he didn't get a nap in for some reason, if he didn't fall asleep or for some reason our schedule didn't allot for it, um, he will sleep eight, Nine o'clock, I think, is the latest he's ever slept. But otherwise, if he's had a nap and he's ready to go, sometimes he's up at 6.30. Um, so it you know, it just really depends on almost what we did the day before. Um, so that's, that's definitely one of the things. So um, now does he get um, like eight hours of sleep generally at night? or He does. Yes, he does. And uh, other things are eating. Um, unfortunately, uh, his... His hands, he's, he's a big one on not wanting people to touch his hands and just different things with his hands. It's taken him a long time to learn to hold a fork, so we primarily um, feed him. Um, one of the other things that mitochondrial disease affects is um, your optics, so he wears glasses. Um, yeah, there's just so many things. He's Oh, and yes, absolutely. He's developmentally delayed. I almost couldn't say that. Um, so... He's 11, but he's probably somewhere around a four-year-old um, in his development. And so um, there's a lot of different things that we do. Even though he's such a big kid, I'm 5'8", and he's almost as tall as I am. Um, but there's so many things that we do that you would be doing with a four-year-old. Um, but he definitely he requires a lot of support throughout the day. But he's an extremely happy child. Um, we're very fortunate. He's very happy. Um, he has so many people around him that love him and support him and help him do all the things that he needs to do. 
Um, so that doesn't mean he doesn't have his moments <laughs> because he does. <laughs> um, but in general, he's, he's a very happy child. And I'm sure I'll think of more things as you talk about Angie. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that go um, with this disease that go hand in hand with other kids. But then there's kids that, you know, I, we have a lot of families that um, their child is pretty normal functioning, but they do just get tired. You know, there's the whole just different ends of the spectrum when it comes to this disease. Um, and it's progressive. And I think right. that's kind of the scary mm-hmm. thing is yeah. it is progressive. So it's interesting some of the things that you were saying because mm-hmm. Angie, um, there's definitely differences in some things that are alike. Like you were talking about Troy's hands. Angie also didn't like her hands being touched. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It was really hard to be able to get like her handprint on like art. Oh, I know. We've tried to she, do so many crafts. Oh yeah, she hated it. <laughs> She's like, nothing better touch my no. hands. Um, and with eyes for Angie, so our we had a vision therapy or a vision teacher. She wasn't really therapy, mm-hmm. um, but vision impairment um, professional. I don't know. <laughs> um, she even told us Angie looked like she should not be able to see anything, mm-hmm. um, but she could. So a lot of times, uh, doctors and teachers, it's really hard to gauge what um, someone with mitochondrial disease can or cannot see. Mm-hmm. Um, so Angie's eyes, uh, they would go all over the place. It's hard. Like sometimes they would point out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes one would point one direction and the other one would be looking at you. Mm-hmm. So you never really knew which eye was on you, but she definitely saw everything. Um, same thing with like colors and shapes. Whenever our our vision teacher would come over, she would purposefully put colors that Angie should not have been able to see. Mm-hmm. And every time Angie was able to, to grab those um, as an object, like the different, like let's say we use yellow, I'm kind of going on of a tangent, but <laughs> if we use yellow, if you use something flat versus a, a ball, you shouldn't be able to tell, I think, the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. And Angie was able to tell if there was an object versus paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but where it's a slightly different is sleep. Um, Angie, so in the very beginning, for the first like four and a half months, it was horrible sleep. Oh. I was up maybe every 30 minutes, 45 oh. minutes. Um, but she was also breastfed. So mm-hmm. she used that as a tool to fall asleep, but she also had reflux. Oh. So I don't know necessarily if she was really hungry or if it was the reflux. Um, but being able to breastfeed or be able to get up with her calmed her down. Mm-hmm. But it was every 45 minutes, which is oh. exhausting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, we did do some sleep training with her. Um, and after we did that, it was maybe two, three days of that. She, it's, it's, I sometimes think of it as like a switch kind of got flipped in her head. Um, to where after our third day of sleep training, she would sleep like 12 hours a night. Oh, wow. Um, so, and I would have to wake her up in the morning mm-hmm. to get ready to go to the nanny and get ready and um, get dressed. Um, but she also had to take naps. She could only last maybe three hours before needing to take a nap. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, she was always in bed by eight. So she she slept a lot. Yeah, and she needed a lot of um, downtime. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, the same thing with her being kind of floppy. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my sister just had a baby, and when I hold her, it's a different feeling than when I held Angie. And I never knew that. I I was first time mom, so I didn't understand. I I wouldn't have known that as a sign or a Mm -hmm. symptom, but Angie was more floppy than the average baby. Um, And now, like in hindsight, I can look back at those times and think, oh, okay, there was a difference. And Mm -hmm. I I think I said this before, but I thought all my friends were just like, they weren't really my friends anymore because (laughs) no one told me how hard it was. Well, it's like you think about it, and I remember when Troy was little, it's like their heads... And when they're a brand new baby, everybody's used to supporting their head. But we're talking about like a six-month-old still having to support their head. You can't just sit them somewhere. You can't just, you know, hold them like you would hold a regular baby. You have to support all the different parts of them because otherwise they're just going to literally, their head will just fall back or forward or, you know, it's it's very, very different. Right. I think Angie, she wasn't able to really hold her head up well until she was probably 10 and a half to 11 months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's when I finally was able to start holding her on my hip. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, every child's different. I think I kind of went backwards on how, explaining Angie's story. <laughs> I should have started from when she was born. Um, but every, every child is, is going to be different. Um, and not every doctor will will understand those symptoms. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're lucky because we are in a city that has doctors that um, uh, research mitochondrial diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, but that isn't to say that there's families in San Diego that haven't been diagnosed because they haven't seen the right doctors. Absolutely. Um, So one of the things that I think we struggle with, and this is definitely um, perfect timing for this, to have this discussion um, with the flu season, but for a mitochondrial child, a child with mitochondrial disease, illnesses are such a huge part of um, almost the progression of their disease. Um, They can have mito crashes when they get sick. Um, they can actually die from so many different things. And the flu is such a scary thing um, for a a child with mitochondrial disease. Um, And so in our daily lives with Troy, it is so important that one, everyone that we associate with or bring him into contact with has to know that if they're sick, if they've been around anybody that's sick, um, that... Even if they're think they have allergies. Yeah, exactly. I, the allergies one is hard. Oh, I have allergies. Well, no, everybody says that and then it ends up being something else sometimes. Um, so, I mean, I carry multiple packets of wet ones with me 24 seven, anything Troy touches, I'm washing his hands. Um, the flu season is the scariest part of the year for us because we are doing our very best not to, um, expose them to illness. And that's so, so difficult. And I think that's one of the things that we struggle with daily. Um, Troy did get the flu a year ago and he was in the hospital for a week. Fortunately, 
Um, he gets a flu shot every year and it didn't affect him extremely bad, but, um, you know, just the daily trying to keep our children healthy is a big struggle for, um, a mito parent. Um, and I think that's one of the things that just really changes your lives. Um, we have another family that has two girls and one of their girls had just a cold and ended up being in the hospital for weeks and weeks, um, and this was a few weeks after she had a cold. And because, you know, kids can go into a mito crash, they use up all their energy um, trying to fight off whatever illness they have. And then they have nothing left to run their bodies. So it's it's very scary um, when we, it comes uh, to illnesses. We would we have uh, sanitizer stations posted in our house. Um, I had sanitizer bottles everywhere. We have like 10 of them in every single room so mm-hmm. or one in each room so that People are constantly using it, um, and now, like, or even then, but especially now, mm-hmm. when I when I play with like my nephew, and I pick him up from school, I freak out when I I still freak out when I go to the park mm-hmm. or anything. Like, I see things, and all I see is germs. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. I mean, um, bringing my new husband into the picture, it's like I think no one thinks about germs the way a parent does that has a child with mitochondrial disease, any, any surface that you touch, anytime you see, you know, like the playgrounds and things like that, it's just breeding grounds. And it's yeah. like, you have this whole, it's like you have goggles on that show you this vision of every possible germ that's out there. And it's, yeah, it makes you a little crazy. I know people probably look at me when I'm wiping down everything going, what is she doing? That lady's crazy. No, I'm the same thing for us. Like even when we had to fly somewhere oh yeah andrew and i we would go through when we would wipe everything oh, down yeah. and people would be looking at us like we're crazy uh-huh. like those germaphobes yeah exactly angie couldn't be near something that hadn't mm-hmm. been wiped down yeah um, we used to actually because troy has flown his family um out of town and we would take one of his little twin sheets and literally put it on the seat. We'd yeah. wipe it down first, but then we'd put it on the seat. Smart. So he wasn't, and then wipe down the window and everything mm-hmm. that he would possibly touch, like you just said. Yeah. yeah. Angie was small enough to where I pretty much just breastfed her on the plane uh-huh. <laughs> and just covered her so she yeah. couldn't touch anything. I was like, don't touch it. Yeah. <laughs> also, like a, a lot, our kids can't go to school um, and they, they miss out on socialization. Mm-hmm. because they can't be among their peers. I mean, every parent or even even non-parents know that schools are um, just a, a breeding ground for colds. Mm-hmm. Your kids are always sick, yeah. like, and they just keep passing it mm-hmm. back and forth. They don't, the young ones don't understand to wipe their nose or to blow their nose or and sanitize. Or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so our, our kids... Oftentimes, we have to have teachers come into our homes yes. because they cannot safely be among other people, mm-hmm. um, which makes it really hard and makes it really lonely because you, you want your kid to have all those experiences. You want them to have friends and to be able to be in a learning environment mm-hmm. in that sense. And it's just unfortunately not a logical place or a safe place to, mm-hmm. to bring our kids. Yeah. And there, Troy, uh, did go to preschool. Um, but I was actually, I was teaching at the time and I only taught 60%. So I would go with him. And if anybody was sick, um, I would take him out or take him home. Um, but eventually probably, I guess, first grade, it just became where it was just too dangerous for him. There were too many kids that were constantly sick. 
Um, and so we took him out, and he's on what's called the home hospital program, where, like you said, the teacher comes to the house every day. And I don't know how many IEPs I've been at with him and with his teachers um, before we just 100% put him on home hospital and just cried because I knew he loves being around kids. He loves watching them. But, you know, it's just you cannot keep them safe from illness. Yes. Um, and it's, it's unfortunately you just have to find other ways to introduce them to kids and different different activities because school, unfortunately, is is pretty dangerous for our kids. But th- there actually are a lot of minor kids that go to school. It's not yeah. saying that they can't or that they don't. Um, those are choices that, you know, parents make, and some kids aren't as severe as others, and right. they're able to tolerate illnesses a little bit better. But, you know, for mine, Troy and probably Angie, it's yeah. just, it was, it's... And it's also the se- severity, mm-hmm. too. How how severe is the mitochondrial disease that your child is being diagnosed with? Um, and, and some families are able to do part-time, like they can go from like March through June. Exactly. That's um, what we did with Troy at the yeah. beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also for um, Mido, uh, we should also say that there is no cure. Um, there are things that you can do to help the symptoms, mm-hmm. um, things that we were talking about before, like sleepiness, um, the, the eyes being able to see, um, the, some developmental delay. Um, there's different vitamins that you can take that help those, um, parts of your body to function a little bit easier, mm-hmm. um, or just your body to function. Exactly. Um, which we will cover in an, in another podcast, but Angie, I can say at least, and it doesn't work for everyone. Mm-hmm. Again, every child is so different. And there are, there are so many different variations of right. what we call it the mito cocktail. Um, there's um, no two alike. No. Um, the amount, the dosages that you, you give are based off of the child's weight. Um, so for Angie, when I was talking about how sleepy she was, um, that was the first year of her life. She was just exhausted to the point of where she could barely keep her eyes open. Mm-hmm. Like you just looked at her and you knew that she was just exhausted. But we started, she did have to have a feeding tube. Um, and that kind of goes into, she also had a um, like sensory issues. So she didn't, we wanted food to be enjoyable and a fun thing for her. And getting her to eat wasn't fun because we were trying to get her nutrition, which mm-hmm. is another major thing for mitochondrial yes. or mito kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got the feeding tube because she was losing weight. She was falling behind. And then after we got the feeding tube, and that's terrifying to make the decision that your child needs a feeding tube. Yeah. Like you feel like a failure because mm-hmm. you can't get your child to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're not. <laughs> no, definitely you're not. You're not. And and sometimes kids, even if you don't have Mito, sometimes kids just need a feeding tube. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually really common. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's, there's two different types. Angie had um, one that went through her stomach, and that was how we gave her the Mito, co- her Mito cocktail. Mm-hmm. Um, and... It was the most, I still remember it. It was just the most amazing day. I was already terrified with, oh man, I'm going to cry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, That's what we do here. <laughs> uh, I was already terrified about the feeding tube and 
now I'm putting on this role of the nurse because now you have to figure out how it works and don't panic if something come, falls out and how to put it back in. Mm-hmm. And if you're hurting them, if you're not hurting them, how to manage the balloon on the inside. And um, But so she had her first dose of the cocktail that we had been trying to give to her for like three months. And she smiled for the first time. Yeah. And it was like, it was like breathtaking because you have this child who doesn't have the ability to show emotion like she couldn't cry she couldn't laugh she couldn't frown she couldn't smile um you knew what she needed even though she couldn't show you those emotions but um but that first like dose it was just insane and um uh, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> Andrew was um, playing with her. He was holding her, and he was, like, shaking his head in front of her, kind of, like, rubbing her nose with, like, his nose. And all of a sudden, she copied him Aww. and did the same thing, and we just, we flipped out. We were like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Get the camera. Yeah, where's the what camera? What if this never happens again? <laughs> yeah. I need it on film. And um, it was just beautiful. It was the coolest, like, moment, and Mm -hmm. it was just amazing to have this cocktail to bring us that part of her Mm -hmm. that we would have never been able to see had we not tried those vitamins. So I think um, even though the cocktail doesn't work for everyone, I I 100% think everyone should try. Mm -hmm. Even if it's small doses at first, talk to your doctor, Find a doctor mm-hmm. that has done a mito cocktail um, because you don't know until you try it. And they're mm-hmm. not crazy things. It's like vitamin E. No, yeah, it's <laughs> things that you can get over the counter, most yeah, of them. Yeah, actually, most of it, mm-hmm. I would say 95% of everything that Angie took was over the counter and couldn't be covered by insurance. Yes. It was stuff that, like, if you... If you go to the gym mm-hmm. and you have any knowledge of supplements, yeah, <laughs> um, you're gonna see that your child is taking the same stuff. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, it was a it was a life changer for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I Troy started the cocktail when he was about two, um, and we didn't we didn't really notice much of a difference, um, but it's something that you know. He's been doing so well for so long, especially when you look at the statistics for Mito kids that, you know, we know it's got to be doing something, you know. Um, So I think, like you said, it just, it really depends on the child, but it's definitely something that you need to try with your Mito kid. And like we said, there's so many variations. I mean, there's things you might have given to Angie that I don't give to Troy. I know just in our little group of moms, you know, there's different things that um, other moms do that, that we don't do. And it's not necessarily that it's bad for them or so experimental, but sometimes it's just because we don't know. I mean, every right. time we get together with other moms, I feel like, Oh, you're doing that. Exactly. I didn't even know yeah. about that. <laughs> you know, it's same so. thing with the, with nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, some kids function better on a keto diet. Yeah. And some kids, they've tried that on their, or some parents have tried that on their kids and it, it does nothing. Yeah. But, and it's a good rule of thought for just anyone in general, but nutrition is one diet might work for one person. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work for another. It's just yeah. how your body, your body is. And metabolizes things. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think 
one of the other things too, besides just the mitral cocktail, is um, therapies. Our kids are in so many different therapies, whether it's physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, Food, speech therapy, therapy yeah. yeah, feeding therapy. Um, there's so many different things that are available to them to help them progress, um, and at whatever rate they're progressing at. Um, but you know, those are things that Troy goes to weekly, multiple therapies. Um, one of the ones that he loves is his um, horse therapy, which mm. just brings out a smile and laughter in him the entire time. Um, and some of the others, PT and OT, they're they're hard. They're very hard for them. Um, speech therapy, he loves. Um, but some of the other therapies are difficult because they really have to work. They really have to spend a lot of energy. Um, and some of the things they just can't do. Yeah. So those are, those are important things as well. So for our next podcast, um, we are going to dive in a little bit deeper to what mitochondrial disease is by talking about its genetics the mutations, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. how it is or isn't inherited. Yes. Yes. So, so yes, our next one will be a little bit scientific, but we um, will try to yeah. <laughs> be on layman's terms, but sometimes it gets a little hard. <laughs> it does. It does. And, you know, we'll also talk about, um, how you can get diagnosed because that right. can be a very long road for some parents, um, and that's important. And the genetics of it is how they diagnose it. So um, that's very important. So if you have any questions about anything that we covered today, please email us at mitopodcast at gmail.com. Or you can go to our Facebook because we have one now. Yes, we do, newly. Um, yeah, so if it looks a little bare right now, <laughs> yes. we're, we're trying to build it. Yes, pictures and things will be coming soon. <laughs> yes, um, so go to Facebook. You can leave comments, questions right there. And um, you can also listen to this podcast yeah. at mitopodcast.com. Mm-hmm. which is also on iTunes. It's on iTunes, and we're working on um, the Android uh, phone so that you can also listen to it on that. That's what I have. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> we're going to get there. We're, we're on our way. We just got so iTunes. So if you so. have an Apple, you're set. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you can listen to it from the website, too. Yeah, exactly, yeah. which is, again, mitopodcast.com. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to us, and have an amazing day. 